come to God's word, our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 23, perhaps the uh, most well-known and most beloved section of the Psalms, perhaps even the whole Bible, whose uh, sweetness and spirituality, Spurgeon said, are unsurpassed. It's on page 541 in your pew Bibles, a Psalm of David, boys and girls, you remember, is the king. Here the king says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Congregation, I made the point as we opened this psalm that the superscription tells us it's of David, that um, David we know is the king. As with uh, so many of the psalms in book one of the Psalter, this psalm is a psalm of the king. The shepherd over his people who yet identifies himself as a sheep, looking to God's hand to feed and lead and guide him. And as the the king and representative of the people, as God does these things for him, God does it also for them. As we've, we've said often, as we look through the Psalms, as it fares with the king, so it fares with his people. That's a principle that we find throughout the Psalms, and it's a principle that's true also of Psalm 23. It is, first of all, a psalm of the king, and yet as God does these things for him, because their life is bound up in his, he does it also for them. Yet again, we need to keep in mind this royal orientation of the Psalms. We need also to keep in mind um, who this king is a type of. Psalm 2, the anointed one who would come from his line, who speaks through his forerunner David as he did in the psalm just before this, Psalm 22. And so before this psalm ever becomes yours or mine, it was first his. Andrew Bonar said the church has, has so exclusively applied this psalm to herself almost to forget that her shepherd once needed it and was glad to use it. The lamb who now is in the midst of the throne was once led along by his father. Bonar says, try every clause and every syllable will be found applicable not to David alone, but to David's son. That's what we need to keep in mind as we look at Psalm 23, that it's first of all a psalm of the king. So look at me first at the king's confidence 
In verses 1 through 3, we um, see it already in those first five words, the Lord is my shepherd. Boys and girls, if you're following along in your Bibles, you might notice that that word uh, Lord is in all capitals. And when you see that word Lord in all capitals, that, that means that it stands for God's covenant name, Yahweh. Um, David is identifying God, not just as his Lord in a generic sense, but as the covenant God who is faithful to the covenant promises that he has made as a God of grace. And as you think about David in particular, what covenant promises has God made to him? We think immediately of that great Davidic covenant, which we read in 2 Samuel 7, of which, which David speaks in Psalm 2. He's assured that God will keep his promises that he made to him regarding a king and a son and a kingdom and a house that would come from his line. He's assured of this because of who his God is. And notice this psalm doesn't just begin with God's covenant name, but if you look all the way down to the bottom, it also ends with it in verse 6. This psalm begins and ends with the covenant God. And so the covenant that God has made with the king ought to be at the forefront of our minds. As Christopher Ashe has said, this is not a psalm about some generic God, but the God, or the covenant God of the Bible story, and specifically the God who has made covenant promises to the king that he's appointed. That king is assured that God will keep his promises because he is his covenant God in a personal way. Notice that pronoun, my. He is his covenant God who has made promises specifically to him. And so David is assured that he will lack no good thing and says, I I shall not want. In fact, this, this phrase and several others throughout this psalm are actually echoing God's care for his people in the time of the exodus. At the time of their wilderness wandering that would come just, just after that. So what, what David really is doing as he echoes this language throughout the psalm is he is further assuring himself of his covenant God's care for him because he is the king and representative of the whole nation. He is assuring himself of, of his care for the head of the nation by calling to mind God's care for the nation in the past in the Exodus. In fact, this this entire shepherd metaphor is most often used in the Psalms with reference to the Exodus. We sang of it just before our service from Psalm 77. Your people like a flock of sheep, you guided every day by Moses and by Aaron's hand. You led them on the way. Your next Psalm after that, Psalm 78, he struck down the Egyptians and led his people out like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Or again, in Psalm 95, the context, again, of the wilderness wandering, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And Psalm 23 is picking up this same language that is elsewhere used of the Exodus. And when David says of his shepherd's good care for him that he shall not want or, or he'll lack nothing, That, too, is actually echoing Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, where he says to Israel, speaking of their their period of time in the wilderness, that you have lacked nothing because your shepherd cared for you. Think of of the daily provision of manna 
of quail, of, of water from the rock. So David here is calling to mind Moses' description of that very thing. And in verse 2, when it says that God leads him, that is the same thing that Moses said at the Song of the Exodus, Exodus 15, 13. You have led your people in your steadfast love. That word for steadfast love is actually the same word that's, that's used in our psalm for, for mercy in verse 6. Or David says in verse 2 that, that God leads him beside still waters. That word for still is actually the word rest. And it's, it's literally saying... He leads me to waters in places of rest. The emphasis being not necessarily on the stillness of the waters, but on the rest that comes from God's, God leading his people to those waters. And again, immediately coming, coming to mind, we could think of Exodus 17 or Numbers 20 and the water from the rock, or, or perhaps um, even, even better, um, Exodus chapter 15, those 12 springs at Elam. The place where God brings his people immediately after the song of the Exodus, just after they they pass through the waters, they're brought to Elam, where their thirst is quenched and they're given rest, by which God restores them and does all of this, verse 3, for his name's sake, which is what Psalm 106, 8 says, speaking of the Exodus and of God's care for them in the wilderness, that he saved them for his name's sake. Over and over, David is using the the Old Testament's language and imagery of God's care for his flock in the time of the Exodus to describe the way that he will care for his king now. Even that language of a valley of deep darkness is used in Jeremiah 2 of God's care for Israel in the wilderness. How they won't have to fear God, for God is with them. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 20 and Psalm 78. And even this language of God preparing for him a table is actually used in Psalm 78 of God caring for Israel in the Exodus when they say in the wilderness, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And he does by striking the rock so that water gushes out and then giving them bread and providing meat for his people. Over and over, the language of Psalm 23 echoes the events of the Exodus. The reason why I'm making this point is not only to, to show you the, the beauty of the interconnectedness of God's word, not only to show you that what David is here speaking of, particularly as it applies to the king to, the, the king to come, uh, suggests that he will bring about a, a new sort of exodus, but also to show you that the king's confidence here as the representative of the nation rests in God, how God has cared for that nation in the past. The king's personal confidence of how God will continue to care for him rests in his assurance of how God has cared for his people in the past. That, by the way, is is one of the reasons why it's good that that we sing uh, some of these these historical psalms, like Psalm 78 or Psalm 104, 105, 106, Psalm 77. Because they remind us of what God has done for his people in the past. And as we are united to that same people... Galatians 3, we too are children of Abraham. We are assured as we, as we sing and consider how God has cared for his people in the past, how he will continue to care for his people now. That this same God who has showed covenant faithfulness to Israel in the time of the Exodus, David is assured that this same God will now show covenant faithfulness to Israel's king in his time of need. 
The king's confidence rests in how the people have been cared for in the past by their covenant God. It was also his covenant God. And so he is assured that even as God led them in his righteousness into the green pastures and places of rest that is, that is ultimately the promised land, so he will lead his king to a place of rest for his namesake. Which, by the way, I think is another indicator that God's covenant with David is in the background of this psalm. Because God had made a covenant promise to the king um, by virtue of that covenant promise by which he has bound himself to the king. Now, God's own reputation, his name, depends on him doing what he has promised. Caring for, leading, guiding, and protecting him so that his kingdom would eventually be established and God would give him rest. As we move um, throughout the the rest of of the psalm, the king understands that this rest, that the glory of his kingdom, this wondrous inheritance that awaits him will only come through the pathway of suffering. As we see in verse 4, having looked at the king's confidence, now we see the king's cross. And he knows he must walk through the valley of death's shadow. And at this point, I would just remind you of of the placement of Psalm 23 right next to Psalm 22. Even even a couple of psalms before that, you remember in Psalm 20, verse 1, how David spoke of of the king to come as as he led the people in praying for the the anointed Messiah to come from his line. And and now in that psalm, in verse 1, David spoke of the day of the king's affliction. The great battle that the Lord's anointed would fight. And then Psalm 22 sort of takes us to the battlefield itself where we see the unparalleled suffering of our king. We're in that psalm, Psalm 22, David spoke as a prophet of his coming descendant who would be pierced in his hands and in his feet, who would be laid down in the dust of death, who would be mocked and and spat on and stripped by his enemies, who would encircle him like roaring lions. That's the valley of the shadow of death that our great king must pass through. In fact, there is a sense in which you could say all of his life is that valley of death's shadow. As Lord says 15 and 16, we, we confess that during all his life long, he suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul as he made his way from the cradle to the cross. His condescension from pre-incarnate glory to to taking on human flesh and then dying at the cross was his passing through the valley of death's shadow. Yet what was it that sustained him as our king made his way to the cross? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Think of what comfort those words must have been as Jesus sang this song during his earthly sojourn. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, although Psalm 22 speaks of Christ being forsaken, we know from Luke 22, verse 43, that as he agonized in the garden of Gethsemane over the looming shadow of his death, that God sent an angel, Luke says, an angel from heaven to appear to him and to strengthen him in his hour of great need. 
And not just there in Gethsemane, but as we sang already this morning in number 401, as, as Jesus, shrinking not from hellish torments, cried for help from God, it was by the Holy Spirit's power he offered up his precious blood. That's a reference to Hebrews 9.14 where it says, Through the eternal spirit he offered himself without blemish to God. Christ went to the cross strengthened and equipped by the Spirit and and having already before that been helped by an angel from God to prepare him and console him and preserve him in those hours of forsakenness by his Father. Even then it was still the case that God by his Spirit was with him. You could say that he was even with him through the Spirit-inspired words of the Psalms that he so often quoted on the cross. It was through these means that our king, though he had to pass through the valley of the cross, was comforted and needed fear no evil. Because he knew from the very psalms that he had hidden in his heart from his youth that the cross was the pathway to those green pastures and waters of rest. That's what is the case also for us. We can have the king's same confidence that because the Lord led him and and guided him as his faithful covenant-keeping God, and you and I are, are in Christ, so he will do the same for us. He will lead us to that promised land of rest and refresh us with those streams of living water. But first, like our king and our head, we must pass through the valley. We must share with him In his suffering, as um, Acts 14.22 says, it is through many trials and tribulations that you must enter into the kingdom of God. You must share with him in his suffering and even eventually, as many of you have experienced this week and in the loved ones whom you've lost, must pass even through the valley of death itself on our way to that promised land of rest. And yet we do so knowing that God is with us. That Christ is with us, who went before us, and because he safely passed through, we can have the comfort and assurance that when we enter the darkness of death itself, we do so as members of the king who has gone before us, who will take us by the hand and lead us as he himself was led by God. The lamb becomes our shepherd. As it says in Revelation chapter 7, the lamb who was slain now sits in the midst of the throne and will be our shepherd and will guide us to springs of living water and wipe every tear from our eyes. Revelation chapter 7 leads us to see Jesus as both lamb and shepherd. He is the lead sheep of the flock in Psalm 23, but having passed through the valley into the house of the Lord forever, now becomes our shepherd who himself guides and leads us to those waters of rest. Jesus is the lamb who becomes our shepherd, who himself was comforted by these words of Psalm 23 during his sojourn on earth and now comforts and shepherds us by giving them to us to assure us that he is with us and that even as we share in his cross, we will also share in his crown. And we will drink from his cup. That's what we see in those last two verses where God prepares a table before him, it says, in the presence of his enemies, anointing his head with oil, his cup overflowing. This is, first of all, talking about the victory of our king. 
and yet a victory that we, his people, share with him. There's three aspects of the king's victory, these last two verses. First, the table that is laid up before him in verse 5. This we're to understand as his victory feast on the other side of his great battle. The battle that, that Psalms 20 and, and 22 spoke of, the battle that Psalm 23 verse 4 alludes to on the other side of that battle on his day of affliction is laid up for him a victory banquet that he will enjoy in the presence of his enemies. And that I think is a, is a key phrase in this psalm, in the presence of his enemies. Um, some like C.S. Lewis don't I very much appreciate this phrase. He, he said that, that it almost ruins the psalm as if, if the psalmist were saying that his joy would not be complete unless those horrid Joneses who, who used to look down their noses at him were watching and hating it and says that this uh, mention of his enemies is petty and vulgar. I think C.S. Lewis maybe misses the point. These enemies that it speaks of are not his neighborhood rivals, the Joneses, but these are the same enemies of Psalm 22 who had crucified and mocked him. And who had said, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him if he so delights in him. And now the Lord does. This is his public vindication. Those enemies who put him to death are now forced to watch as he celebrates his resurrection in triumph. This is the very thing that Psalm 2 prophesied, the the very entryway into the soldier, that those enemies of the king who would plot in vain his destruction are now held in derision by God as he sets his king on his holy hill and laughs. That setting of the king on his holy hill is, in fact, the next part of the king's vindication. He's not only welcomed with a victory feast in the presence of those who mocked and pierced him, but is an anointed as king, as oil is, is poured over his head. Church father Cassiodora said of verse 5b, this is the anointing of Jesus Christ, the head of the faithful. The Jewish rabbis applied this to the king Messiah who will be anointed with the oil of anointing. Same oil we see in 1 Samuel 10 or 1 Samuel 16 for Saul or, or David when they're anointed as king. It's a little bit like what we read in Psalm 21, where after his great battle, the king is then met with rich blessings and a crown of fine gold is is placed upon his head. Or Psalm 22, where after his exaltation unto glory, we're told that kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This is the once crucified king now ruling in the midst of his enemies, anointed with oil, given a crown, and then, verse 6, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Another privilege reserved for the king, as we'll see in Psalm 24, that it's the king of glory who enters God's house. This is him who passed through the valley of death's shadow, won a great victory, and now enters in as the triumphant man of war to his celestial habitation where he'll dwell for a length of days forever and ever. And in Hebrew, this is actually the exact same phrase from Psalm 21.4, where after the king is crowned with that crown of fine gold, it says, he asked life of God and God gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. 
have the same phrase that's used here. This is talking about the eternal life of the resurrected and descended king, the, the same thing that Psalm 23 speaks of there in Psalm 21. That this king who has been brought down to the, the lowest point of the valley of death is now exalted in the highest place where he dwells forever with God and as we'll see in Psalm 24, in fact, is God reigning over all things forever as the divine king of glory, ruling and reigning even for us and sharing with us out of the overflow of his abundant blessing. That's the last thing that I want to think about as we consider the king's cup or the king's crown, how what is given to the king is given also to us. For in this victory banquet of our exalted king, notice in verse 5 how his cup is not just filled, but it overflows. Spilling over also to us that we might one day share in his victory banquet at the wedding supper of the Lamb, of which we already get a foretaste in the supper of our Lord. He makes the cup of his victory banquet overflow even to his people because his victory is our victory. And so we share in his feast. We share also in his anointing in verse 5b, so that even as Christ is is crowned and, and anointed as king, we share, Lord's Day 12, in his anointing by the power of his Holy Spirit who is poured out to us on Pentecost. And so unites us to him so that we will reign with Christ as as anointed kings in him over all creation for eternity and even strive already now against sin and the devil in this life. He anoints our heads with oil. He gives us his spirit and makes us share in Christ's anointing. And that spirit who leads and guides us, verses 2 and 3, in the righteous paths of his word will carry us all the way to the end when we too share in the ascension of our king into the house of the Lord where goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, length of days, forever and ever. See, this afternoon in Psalm 24, how how none of us deserves, by virtue of our hands and and lips and hearts that are stained with sin, none of us deserves to be able to enter into God's house. There is only one singular man who is righteous enough, but that man, the lead sheep who becomes our shepherd, makes a way for us so that we too, as anointed prophets, priests, and kings, sharing in his feast, may dwell there with him, ruling and reigning forever. All that belongs to the king in this psalm belongs to his people. The assurance of dwelling in that land of rest, the guidance by his spirit given through his word, the comfort even in the face of death, knowing that Christ our King is with us and the blessed hope of feasting with him in glory in the presence of his Father with our shepherd lamb who feeds us. You see what unspeakable comfort this psalm gives. You see why it was that Spurgeon said its sweetness is unsurpassed. You see what comfort this psalm gives that in all the trials we face in this life, we know that Christ our King has gone before us. He himself now leads us, even taking us by the hand as we pass through the valley of death, assuring us that he will lift us up to glory in the sight of those who hate us to feast out of the overflow of his cup of salvation as we dwell in the Lord's house forever. 
That is the Christian's hope. And it's inseparably tied to the experience of Christ himself who went before us. You see, a Christ-centered reading of this psalm doesn't rob us of personal comfort. It, it deepens the comfort by making us know that every blessing Psalm 23 speaks of is enjoyed in Christ, who first sang this psalm and now gifts it to us to sing with him on our pilgrim way as the lamb who was slain, who's become our shepherd, who now leads us and guides us all the way home to the springs of living water where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's the inspired commentary that Revelation 7, verse 17 gives of Psalm 23, that Jesus is both lamb and shepherd who walked the road that we now travel and and guides us safely through to be his honored guest for all eternity where goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life because we are joined to him by his spirit through faith. So trust in Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, who passed through the valley of darkness for you. Let him take you by the hand and lead you through this life by his spirit until he brings you to those streams of living water and places of rest. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this sweet, sweet psalm that was Christ's before it became ours. And he as our king shares with his people. He as our bridegroom shares with his bride. So that this psalm that not only brought him unspeakable comfort uh, might also bring us unspeakable comfort. That because you are our shepherd in Christ, we lack no good thing but have all that we need you guide us by your spirit, you carry us through the the valley of death's shadow, and you comfort us along the way with the promise of eternal glory with Christ our King. Lord, we thank you for this comfort, and we pray for the many in our congregation who have lost loved ones this week, that you would comfort them with the gospel of Psalm 23, with the hope of everlasting life feasting with you in the presence of our shepherd lamb who feeds us. Father, let us take comfort in this psalm. Let us trust in our shepherd lamb by faith. Even those uh, hearing this gospel proclaimed who do not know him, or would you convict their hearts of the beauty of this shepherd lamb? that they too might determine by grace to let him lead and guide them, even as he leads and guides us by his spirit-inspired word to lead us in his same paths of righteousness for your name's sake. All of this we pray in Jesus' name.